4: Come on in, pull up a stool, and let me pour you a drink. And let's talk a little Noir at the Bar.
5: Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the Left Coast Crime in Seattle, April 11th to 14th. So not only do you get to hear them on the show here, you can go visit them, meet them, and maybe get a book signed. John, what's going on on your end of the bar?
2: Well, I'm sitting down here with Wanda Morris, a fabulous award-winning crime writer and also a coastmaster for uh, uh, Left Coast Crime, and, and um, which I'm going to get need some points for because... Um, I'm going to be Toastmastering next year, and I'm a little terrified. So, Wanda, you've got to, like, figure it all out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good luck to you if you've taken tips.
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so you are reading from your new book, What You Leave Behind, and um, I will leave you to it. I'm excited to hear.
1: Great. Thanks, John. All right, I'll be reading from the prologue and then a portion of Chapter 1. The island was ours, and we roamed everywhere except for one place. Dunbar Creek. Some folks believed it was haunted, filled with mystical, unseen spirits. Other folks called Dunbar Creek the end of the world. It very well could have been, too, after what happened there. Way back in 1808, the government passed a law that declared there was to be no more ships transporting our African people to this country to turn them into slaves. But evil men with no hearts or souls continued to work in clandestine ways, even after the slave trade had been outlawed for years. Those mongrels on two legs anchored their boats on quiet creeks and rivers along the Georgia coast. Small ships that left lands and broke family bonds, it would take their cargo generations to knit back together. One blue-black night just before dawn peeked over the horizon, a small schooner called the York slinked along Dunbar Creek to unload a cargo of West Africans known as the Igbo people of Nigeria. The old folks told us how the Igbo rose up and took over that ship. They were dirty, tired, but still strong enough to drive their captors overboard. But other vile men waited for those brave souls when the boat hit the shore men ready and waiting to get them to plantations across the south. After they were taken off the ship, they were shackled once more, chained together with freedom slipping from their grasp. The Igbo ancestors knew what lay ahead and decided in that moment what their future would be. They chose freedom. Together, they walked into the water, shoulder to shoulder, their chains still intact. The farther they walked, the closer they came to freedom. When the final ripple of water erased the last trace of them, they were free. Some folks say the Igbo people drown themselves deliberately by walking into Dunbar Creek. But not me. I think those brave souls walked into the water and flew home. Imagine it. A person could be so disgusted with the thought of living in bondage that death seemed a better option. Like the Igbo people, perhaps there is a better option for me, and one day I'll fly home too. Chapter 1 Dead people don't talk to the living. It should have been like any other drive out to the island to hear her voice. Simply get in the car and ride and ride until the tears blurred my vision, making it impossible for me to see and forcing me to pull over to the side of the road. On really bad days, I'd drive for over an hour, sometimes winding up in a different city or town. Street signs and landmarks shifting in the periphery as I went chasing after someone I couldn't see or touch. Once, I drove all the way to Savannah from Daddy's house in Brunswick, but I never once went to the cemetery where she was buried, because to me, she wasn't in some dark hole in the ground. She was with me. I needed to believe that, or else I would die, too. Depending on the day, sometimes I would go to a park to sit and listen to the brief voicemail she'd left on my phone. I only had a few because it was rare that I didn't pick up a call from her. Even if I was in a meeting, I picked up her calls. Now, I relied on the soft fragments of brain tissue that conjured up memories and the deep well of despair in my heart to connect me to the woman I cherished more than anyone else in the world, Elizabeth Wood, Lippy to her family and friends, Ma to me. Her death had landed like a boxer's blow inside my chest, sweeping away my breath and bringing me to my knees. A year later, and I was still having a hard time navigating the indescribable grief, because the person who usually helped me through any heartache I ever had was now the source of it. Shortly after she died, I would swear I could still hear her voice, the cadence of it as she talked about some church gossip or giggled at some joke daddy had told her. It was silly, I know. Maybe it was some sort of grieving mechanism to get me through. When you're a grown woman and you lose a parent, people expect you to power through the grief. You have a job, responsibilities, you're an adult. You're supposed to know that death is a part of life. And if you looked at me on the outside, I was all that. But on the inside, I was a broken mess. And as if losing Ma wasn't enough, that imaginary boxer hit me with a one-two combo. Two months after Ma's death, Lance came home one night, quietly ate dinner with me, and then proceeded to tell me he was filing for divorce. He told me I wasn't the same since Ma's death. Who is after you lose someone you love? The truth of the matter is that Lance was exactly the same. Things I had stupidly tolerated before as a small ripple in our marriage, flirtatious interactions with restaurant week staff, women we encountered in a store who were unusually comfortable with them, became a tsunami. The sudden appearance of receipts for jewelry I didn't own and dinners at restaurants I'd never been to became ground zero for the ugly destruction of a marriage that had been a fragile
4: structure from the start.
1: Much of what happened between us I still hadn't told anyone, including Daddy. Perhaps that's the way life is. You don't just deal with one bad thing at a time. Life throws a stream of adversities at you, with no break in between. Ma used to call it a season. A job loss follows a death in the family. A cancer diagnosis comes right before a car accident. It's like a nonstop battle with the universe to see if you're strong enough to fight your way through the layers of misfortune and heartache. But Ma always said, seasons pass. With no real home home of my own and my life in tatters, I left Atlanta and moved back to the house I grew up in in Brunswick, Georgia. The prodigal daughter returned home with a divorce settlement and a set of emotional baggage heavy enough to kill a decent-sized bear under its weight. I needed what the old folks used to call a day clean, a new start, a fresh day.
2: Wanda, that was beautiful. I was gripped from the beginning. I'm so excited to read this novel. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you're exploring with it?
1: Sure. So Dina Wood is an attorney, and you obviously just heard um, how her life has fallen apart. So she returns home to Brunswick, Georgia, which is uh, along the coastal islands of Georgia. And uh, she goes out driving one day and stumbles upon a widower uh, who lives in a trailer on some oceanfront property. Uh, When he goes missing, she goes in search of what happened to the guy. And what she uncovers is um, devastation among her community. Um, she uncovers a political scheme that takes away um, the land and property of poor and disenfranchised people under what is a really a legal um, concept. It's called heirs' property. And so if people die without a will or some designation of what happens to their property after they die, the property becomes, uh, or a share of it, becomes inherited by everyone that they're related to. And all it takes is one person to sell their share, and then the land can be forced um, into a partition sale. And so a lot of really um, conniving real estate developers will go and break up families and force a, a partition sale. And that's how they get their hands on very expensive property. And so... Um, this book explores what that concept does to um, communities in rural areas. It happens in big cities, rural areas, um, all over. It happens to primarily Black and Brown, of course, and then in rural Appalachia.
2: That sounds fascinating. I'm, I, I'm, I've marked my calendar right. It's in mid June, June 18th, right? It's coming out. To have that date right.
1: <laughs> yeah, it comes out. Yeah, June 18th, and um, I'm really excited about this one. This one is really kind of personal, too. It, it deals with grief and loss, but also hope and resilience among the community. Um, and so I hope people will, will dip in and, and partake, because I think that there's um, not only kind of this whole exploration of what happens into communities, <laughs> these communities, um but also
2: there's a lot of humor in the book um, as well. Thank you, Wanda. Al, so who is hanging down um, at your end of the
5: bar? Well, actually, this next guy, you know, we've been doing this, like this show's been on 12 years, and we do 200 shows a year, and I always like to keep independents coming on the show, you know, at least one or two a week uh, right through, And, and it's because of writers like this next guy, because every, you know, one or two of that, Year when you get the independents that actually write, that do an incredible job. They come out of nowhere and they just self do it themselves. And he's also the winner of the 2023 Best Indie Book Award and Crime Thriller. So, we're, I'm pleased to have him, Michael Balter, and he's going to be reading from Chasing Money. Hello, Michael.
6: Hi, Al. Thank you for having me uh, to tell you a little bit about the book before I start to read. It's um, it's a crime thriller, as you said. It's basically about two business partners who are with a uh, with a struggling startup, and they have a third partner. Um, and they probably should have vetted this partner a little bit better. Um, and when they attend a pitch meeting, um, their partner gets murdered right in front of them, and um, that basically starts a desperate search for $10 million and a mysterious missing painting. Um, I will be reading from um, the first uh, opening pages of of the book. Chapter 1, Monday Evening, The Pitch Meeting. There's a line in a country song that goes, Chase after the dream, don't chase after the money. Well, I'm here to tell you that's wrong. Screw the dream, chase the money. Always. Chase the money. It's what Bo Bishop and I've been doing in one form or another for several years now. Raising capital, building runways, stalking angels, bootstrapping, are all the same thing. Convincing someone kind, generous, greedy, or stupid to fund your ambition to become rich. The trick here is not to find someone with money, but rather to find someone with throwaway money, or someone who wants to make throwaway money, also called an angel investor raising capital is a trial for every entrepreneur there are outliers who manage to bag investor money as if it were a pizza delivery because they have the genius the credentials or the connections to underwrite their venture for most of us however it's an endless soul-destroying process of begging the privilege to keep the doors open while the world works hard to keep them shut that's how Beau and I came to be in a shabby little wood cabin about 20 miles west of Mount Hood, strapped to cheap chrome kitchen chairs, our hands taped behind our backs, and our ankles taped to the chair legs. We were terrified and tractable. Nico, our silent partner and the reason for everything that happened, was there as well, one of the rare times he elected to join us on a potential investor pitch. His hands and feet were taped like bows in mine. The chairs sat side by side on top of a blue painter's tarp rolled out over the cabin's wood floor. It was a fishing cabin, purposely not fancy, with a slight smell of wet tent. A couple of antler mounts hung on paneled walls between a mounted shotgun and two old fishing rods crossed like swords. A faded U.S. flag was nailed to the stone fireplace. Much of the Sears catalog furniture had been moved about to make room for the tarp and the chairs. A bald, beefy guy with more fat than muscle stood over us. His fleshy, tattooed fingers fiddled with a large roll of black gorilla tape he'd used to strap us down. It must have been a tough job tying our hands and feet, because he was breathing heavily through his mouth and his face, a boxer's face, with a nose that had seen more than its share of punishment, was shiny with sweat. Another big guy, with more muscles than fat, dark, oily hair and squinty eyes, and a stern face, stood a couple of feet back, waving a Beretta 9 millimeter like a baton. Not that I knew it was a Beretta 9 millimeter. That came later. Jesus Christ, Nico cried for the third time after the fat guy finished taping him to the chair. In response to Nico, the guy holding the Beretta barked back in a thick Irish brogue, Shut up! And then, one more word and this baby goes off in the mouth that speaks. He shipped the 9 millimeter in case we didn't understand what this baby referenced. He took a giant step back as he spoke, moving past what I guessed he calculated was the periphery of any potential blood spatter. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Or the gun. We were in serious trouble and none of us knew why. This disconnect, the the complete detachment of the why from the what, caused our panic. Tied to that chair, I fixated on breathing evenly and squeezing my bladder. Oddly, at that moment, the possibility of being shot by a stranger in a dingy cabin for an unknown reason carried a lower priority with me than the embarrassment of possibly pissing myself. We tumbled into the mess by driving to Rhododendron, a touristy village located halfway up Mount Hood. We'd been led to believe we would meet with an interested venture capitalist from out of town. On our first and only phone call, the investor told me he was renting a cabin for the week and was looking to get some quick business done between trout fishing excursions. Bo and I figured he was a small fund manager looking for a way to write off the expense of a fly fishing trip to Oregon. He'd been cryptic on the phone, but that was not unusual for private equity guys who get tagged regularly by scroungers like us looking for money. The wood floor creaked as the fat guy shifted his weight and stretched out his right knee. Then, blessedly, the screen door behind us opened and slammed shut, breaking the silence with the same loud clap made by screen doors in cabins everywhere. Another guy, slim but sturdy, walked in and stood in front of us. He leaned slightly forward like he was battling a headwind. His appearance rattled me even further. His face was too immature for the rest of them. He looked like a teenager trying on his father's clothes. Black cashmere sports jacket, faded clean jeans, crisp white shirt, big watch, nice shoes. He looked exactly like someone we expected to meet. Expected to pitch our investor deck too, but much younger, and we wouldn't be bound to chairs. He scanned us with dark, dead eyes and a chilling calm like he was examining a fast food menu. I couldn't look at him directly. His mannequin-like face oozed malice, so instead I focused on the resolute Irishman with the beretta, watching it swing ever so slightly. After a cruel minute of continuing the oppressive silence, The new guy took a deep breath and said, thank you for coming. At which point, the Irishman dropped his hand to his side, aiming the 9mm at the floor. I thought I'd pass
5: out. Excellent. Thank you that was that was incredible listen uh, where do you get the details for these characters from is that is, it, it sounds like you've lived through this <laughs> uh,
6: <laughs> i was um I was an entrepreneur for about uh, twenty years. Uh, I was first a technologist uh, and then uh, that was for my the first half of my career in the second half I was an entrepreneur um so I raised capital and uh and a lot of the characters in the book are based on um, either people that I not people that I, I I've known or met or uh, heard about. Um, so I, I tend to base my characters on um, on real folks as much as possible.
5: Ooh. hopefully they don't have your phone number. No. <laughs> no, <just. laughs>
6: yeah, I, I fictionalize them enough. <laughs>
5: Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, we look forward to seeing you in, uh, you know, Seattle Shakedown for Left Coast Crime in April.
6: I'm really looking forward, and I'm looking forward to meeting everybody on this podcast.
5: Okay, Joe, what's going on down at your end? There's a big commotion going on. There is commotion because Leslie Carson
0: and I are enjoying a delicious umbrella drink down here at at our end of the bar. And because she's going to be reading from Molten Death, which is an Orchid Isle mystery coming out. in April of this year, and I've read the synopsis, and I'm really looking forward to hearing a part of this book. So take it over, Leslie.
7: Well, thanks so much. Uh, it's great. Thank you for inviting me to read today with all these fabulous authors. It's terrific. So, yes, Molten Death is what I'm going to be reading from near the, near the beginning of it. And um, I'll give you just a bit of a background, which is that Valerie is the protagonist, and Valerie and her wife, Kristen, are on the Big Island of Hawaii, where I live halftime, and uh, on vacation, And they're staying with Kristen's surfer buddy, Isaac, who has agreed to take the two women out to hike out to see the uh, active lava flow. Isaac negotiated a series of boulders and pits along the route and pulled up next to a dark-colored pickup truck. About 50 feet ahead, the road came to an abrupt end, having been engulfed by a thick ooze of hardened black rock. Valerie climbed out of Isaac's Subaru and knelt to tighten the laces of her hiking boots. Straightening back up, her eyes took in the night sky, across which an astonishing number of stars were splashed, far more than she ever saw back home. Oh my God, there's the Milky Way. I told you it was worth getting up early, Isaac said, shouldering his day pack. Hele on, let's get moving. Hele awaits. Kristen switched on her flashlight and started forward. But don't try to rush, Isaac added with a look backwards. It could be tricky walking over lava. Got it. Locating Kristen and Isaac with the beam of her flashlight, Valerie followed them out across the rock. Isaac was right. It took some getting used to crossing a lava field in the dark. Valerie was glad he was leading the way, as he was able to pick out the easiest path over the uneven terrain. She was also glad she'd followed his advice to wear blue jeans rather than shorts, since it became clear after only a few steps that it would be easy to take a tumble and slash your knee on the sharp, glassy rock. They'd been walking for less than ten minutes, Valerie, whose legs were considerably shorter than those of her two tall companions, consistently pulling up the rear. When Isaac called out, I see it! Catching up to the others, she turned off her flashlight and gazed out where Isaac was pointing. In the distance was a distinct red glow. As her eyes adjusted to the dark, Valerie realized there were numerous red patches, forming a line stretching all the way up the hill. How far away is it? she asked. Not too far. It's closer than it looks, Isaac said got a jam, so we can get there before sunrise. As if on cue, a pink tinge emerged on the horizon, stealing into the sky and giving definition to a line of puffy, trade-wind clouds. They hurried on. Just a few minutes later, they crested a small rise, and there it was. A shape-shifting mass of orange and red creeping inch by inch downhill. A couple of people were already at the flow, their silhouettes drifting in and out of view as the steam and the smoke from burning vegetation came between them. It looked alive, like some slithering beast come up from the depths to crawl slowly towards the sea. Orange fingers flowed from the main body at all angles, taking on new forms and hues as they made their way down the slope. A fine filigree of black floated on the surface of the lava, where the viscous fluid quickly cooled in the ocean air. But just underneath, you could see the fiery magma, its edges a searing yellow-white, where the fingers stretched till they burst, spilling forth their contents of molten rock. Whoa! Valerie stood there, unmoving, unable to take her eyes from the sight. Isaac, however, was busy rummaging through his pack. He pulled out three small bananas and offered them around. Uh, thanks! Valerie managed to stop gawking long enough to take one from him. It's a sort of a tradition, he said as they peeled their fruit. I always eat a banana when I get to the flow, and then toss the skin out and watch it burn. It's not disrespectful, Valerie asked. I mean, I read that folks sometimes leave bottles of gin as offerings to Pele, but banana peels? Isaac took a last bite and hurled the yellow skin onto a pool of lava that had broken out from the main flow. Everyone can use a little more potassium in their diet, he replied, even if you're a goddess. Valerie and Kristen followed suit. Valerie expected the peels to sink, but instead they simply sat there, floating on top of the red-black flow. After a few minutes, they finally caught fire, and then were quickly gone. Well, I'm going to hit peel a bit and get some shots back this way before that amazing backdrop disappears, Isaac said, peering down to check the settings on his Nikon camera in the dim light. Valerie turned around and saw what he meant. A crescent moon hung low in the now-purple sky, with a single planet burning brightly above. She could just make out the thin line of the ocean, edged in the foreground by jagged black rock. Kristen pulled her phone from her pocket and tagged along after Isaac, but Valerie stayed put. She wanted to simply sit down and watch the show. It was mesmerizing, the way the lava beast spread its limbs in its non-stop march downhill, and how it continually morphed into crazy shapes. A heart breaking slowly in two. A woman's face with long, streaming hair. A winged dragon. The flow came nearer, and she felt the force of its heat, as if the doors to a massive oven had opened wide. Standing back up to step back, she wandered downflow, watching a small finger dribble into a crevice and quickly fill it in. Tiny ferns had sprung up in a few of the cracks nearby. Resilient little plants, doomed though they were. Looking out toward the sea, Valerie saw that the sun was now above the horizon. The low-lying clouds had turned orange and gray, and the sky was a pale blue. She faced back uphill, but could see no sign of Kristen or Isaac. Nice! To be alone, with only the sound of the wind and the crackle of rock being blanketed by the newest land on the planet? She continued on, skirting the edge of the flow. Now that the sun was up, she could tell that there were two different kinds of cooled lava rock, a twisty, ropey-looking kind and a more pillowy, smooth variety. And she could see that while the older floes were a dull gray, the brand-new rock was a shiny black, sparkling in the sunlight. Her eye was caught by a color that didn't belong, a flash of fluorescent green, At the very edge of the flow. Curious, she walked over and saw that it was a shoe. No, more like a workman's boot with bright green laces. Now, how could someone leave their boots here, she wondered. You'd never be able to hike back over the lava field without your shoes on. And then she got that queasy feeling you experience when there's a disconnect between what you expect to see and what's actually there, for the shoe had not been left behind after all. It was still on a foot, But that was all that was visible, because the rest of the body had been covered over by hot lava.
0: That is uh, descriptive, enticing, a tasty morsel uh, for this book.
7: Um, Can you tell that I'm a lava junkie?
0: (laughs) You're a lot. Which kind of leads to my question: Is there is a a level of importance using Hawaii as the idea as your setting? So maybe you can give us, since the setting seems to be positively disappear. Uh, what was the level of importance for you for creating Hawaii as a setting for this book?
7: Very important. I mean, I uh, I have a previous series that's set in Santa Cruz, California, where I also live half time, and I but I've been coming to Cal- uh, to Hawaii oh since the early 1990s and um, have started living here about 16 years ago half time, and I just wanted to write set a book in Hawaii for years. Uh, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, it was. Kind of a hard sell getting it published for a while because people, I had people say, oh, we already have a book set in the tropics, you know, kind of thing. But thank goodness Severn House, when I uh, pitched it to them, were very excited and said, absolutely, absolutely. So, yes, Hawaii is very, very dear to my heart. And in particular, I live on the Big Island where there are three active volcanoes. And um, one of the reasons that I ended up here is because I, the lava is, once you've seen the hot lava, it's, it's
0: kind of addicting. <laughs> yeah, I went to Hawaii, wanted to see lava, and saw smoke. So that was a it was a, a great time. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, it happens. Uh, but I'm, if, if you if you heard that part, that piece, if you read the stuff. Just run out and get this book when it comes out in April of this year. Excellent. Thank you very much. Hey.
1: Aloha. <laughs> this has been a production of the House
4: of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at house
2: Welcome. Come on in. Full up a stool.
4: Let me for you a drink.
5: Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the left coast crime in seattle april 11th to 14th so not only do you get to hear them on the show here you can go visit them meet them and maybe get a book signed john what's going on on your end of the bar
2: gary phillips and i are down here at end of the bar trying to get the bartender's attention for a drink Um, we're very thirsty Uh, but in the meantime gary is going to read from his short story collection, The Unvarnished. And Gary, I believe you're reading, uh, Demon of the Track, is that correct?
8: Yes, I'm gonna read the opening, uh, uh, pages to uh, Demon of the Track, John. Demon of the Track. Adam Deacon Coles tapped the brakes and swung his 41 Willis scoop to the right, his high beams illuminating the edge and the drop-off. The green mercury with a supercharger scoop sticking out of the hood brushed against the left side of his car. He didn't care about the body, He was full of dents, and the fenders and passenger door were mismatched colors obtained from the salvage yard. But he didn't want the merc knocking him over the edge of the rise as he took the turn. The mercury was on the inside of the curve. plumes of dirt and loose rocks clouding behind both cars as they sped, their rear ends bumping once, twice together, then apart again. Each car had big bore engines in them that were not stock. Their mechanic drivers had cut and welded and pounded to fit them into their respective vehicles. The roar of those engines filled the calves of each car as their owner sought dominance. The race crowd hooped and hollered.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
8: And made other joyous noises down where the race started and would end. Behind the gathered rose a wide ramp of the Santa Monica Freeway under construction a mass of concrete and rebar sticking out of the end as if the ramp had been sawed off by a storm giant, for this was as far as the work had taken the builders. The goal was to construct a byway connecting downtown to the coast. In the process, the homes of working-class black folk in what was called the Pico District, people who'd come west in the 30s and 40s to work the then boom of oil fields and later aircraft, had been snatched up by eminent domain. Those same homes were rented back to them before they were kicked out and the houses torn down to make way for rivers of freeway cement. The race took place primarily on a snake of land that had been bulldozed to gradually rise nearly a quarter mile up that took a whip turn around to descend into a flattened, cleared area that once housed a park and an apartment complex. Now there were stands of unfinished pylons and piles of Concrete and wood and glass debris from demolished houses to maneuver around. Then another turn through a partially fenced in area where several heavy duty trucks and tractors and the crowd were gathered. Back to the rise of land again. To add to the difficulty, it was now dusk and the natural light fading, so a driver's vision and reflexes had to be sharp. The improvised racetrack was a rough oval. The racers had to drive around ten times. This was the eighth lap. They came out of the turn, the Merck taking the lead. Downhill the cars plowed, the Willis running over a chunk of concrete which Coles praised didn't blow out his tire. Reaching the flattened area, he swerved around a pylon, the murk now on his right flank. The other car zig and zagged between two interspersed t- pylons and veered back toward Coles' car. Traveling at more than 90 miles an hour, both were honing in on another pylon, dead center, piled concrete on either side of the two vehicles. Coles went left and the other car gobbled distance opposite. But the worst hit <laughs> sizable rut in the earth and would have snapped the front axle in half given the speed they were traveling. Coles smiled ruefully. Fortunately, he installed hydraulics taken from a junk World War II airplane wing in the front leaf springs connected to the straight axle. Those helped absorb the impact. Good thing he'd run into a man he knew, Ron Aguirre, at a car show about a year ago and Aguirre had shown him the hydraulics he installed on a custom car he called a lowrider. At the flick of a toggle switch, he could lift and lower the car's shell. Now as he reached the other turn, Coles pressed down again on the accelerator and pulled up the handbrake in a maneuver he'd been practicing. He fishtailed through the turn, forcing the Merc to swing wider to avoid his car. In this way, he gained the lead as he straightened out. They whooshed past the crowd. Coles kept in front, but the Mercury was tight on his tail. As they got near the top again of the quarter-mile dirt rise, the Merck attempted to gain an advantage by powering through the turn. But the driver miscalculated when to apply the gas. And just as he was about to complete the turn, momentum caused the rear end to lose purchase, and the car skidded over the side of the dirt ramp. It rolled once, twice, and landed upright down below. Coles completed the race, then ran from his car once he turned it off to see about his opponent. Someone had already gotten the other... Driver free from his wrecked vehicle. Fortunately, both cars had roll bars installed in the interior. You okay, Sack? Coles asked William Sakamoto. The other driver's face was cut and bruised. Looks like I'll live, Deke. He took a step up, but his knee buckled. Coles put a hand under his arm. Okay, maybe I'll sit down a minute, he grinned. Bystanders laughed and clapped the two on their backs. Somebody had a folding beach chair and set it up for Sakamoto to sit. A few kerosene camping lanterns had been brought and those were lit against the oncoming night. Some of the people left, and others milled about, talking about the race or examining the mercury while drinking beers. The smell of marijuana drifted about, and one beatnik sat on the crinkled fender of the mercury, wailing on his bongos. Good race, Deke, said a blonde in striped pants and a sweater top. She handed him a can of hams. You hear the coolest, Dory. Ain't I, she said, wandering away. A tall man in a snap bin hat and a Hawaiian shirt stepped over the coals. The night was warm. Mind if I have a word with you, Mr. Coles? They were near the Willis, and Coles leaned against the driver's door. What can I do for you? Coles was in rolled-up sleeves, tan chinos, and worn heavy work boots. His hair was close-cropped, and a scar ran part of the length of his jawline. My name is Fred Warrens. He was in his late 40s, brown hair, at the nape of his neck, and with hazel eyes. He had a trim mustache and knobby knuckles. Coles showed interest you manage managed the Sentinel Speedway, don't you? Yes, sir. What's going to do for you, Mr. Warrens? I want you to race at our track. Coles chuckled harshly. What, you going to have bring a Negro to the races night? He chuckled some more. Uncomfortable, Warrens frowned. That's a crude way of putting it, Mr. Coles, but would we would like to offer you a featured spot. I know something of your record. Fighter pilot in Korea, flying Mustangs, and then the F-80 jets. Over 75 missions and 10 confirmed kills in air combat. The deacon of the air, they called you. Yeah, well, he said dismissively, you read that old article on me and Ebony, so I guess that makes you an all right sort of guy, huh? But wasn't it an article that since the war you've been building and racing hot rods and pickup contests all over town. A lot of people, black and white, talk you up. Well, yeah, it still means me and mine is unwelcome at, your all, at you all precious racetracks all over town. Warrens looked off at a few people dancing and snapping their finger. As the bongo man beat out a frenzied rhythm, he looked back at Coles. Let me put my cards on the table, okay? Please do. It's no secret that Inglewood is changing, and well, we think we need to change the times too. Citadella Speedway was on a hill overlooking Citadella Avenue in Inglewood. Uh-huh. Coles folded his arms. You mean them color folk who've been buying homes near the plant since after the big one has also meant they go to the races and have noticed a lack of shade down on the track? Looking past Warren's shoulder, Coalspun helped but noticed a Mexican American woman he hadn't seen around before. She was dark-haired and copper-hued, wearing black jeans and a black top, landing like glinting off gold hoop earrings. She was something. She glanced his way and smiled as a man in a T-shirt offered her a toke on the tea, the marijuana. The woman declined. "Think what chapter of the NWACP is threatening to boycott," campaign Warren said. "We've been very active." When it comes to jobs promotion at North American Aviation, Cole smiled bemusedly. Didn't you tell him you had a couple of black fellows working at the track already, Mr. Warrens? Both of them janitors, I believe. Now, ain't that so? Warrens spread his hands. As I said, we want to do things differently. Then bring some colors onto the pit crews. Cole's countered. We can't demand that of a racer and his sponsors. That's their decisions to make. But you want me to shuck and jive at some kind of hopped-up show, it? Ain't, ain't, ain't that right? Make sure the cameras are there on me after the race, and I got this big sheeting, shitting grin on my mug, thanking you and the Lord for the special, special day. Well, maybe take a knee and break in the mammy while I'm at it. You're looking at this all wrong, Mr. Coles. Sorry you wasted your time, Mr. Warrens. He took a pull. Warrens lingered, taking in a deep breath and letting it out slow. He adjusted his hat and left. Coles shook his head and finished his beer. Nearby was a mound of junk, and walking toward it, he tossed his can onto the pile turning he encountered the woman in black you're a skilled man she said her accent was heavy but her words were clear like they were being tattooed on the spine maybe it's equal parts stupid sometimes he counted careful not to get lost in those depthless eyes of hers but winning is good for business the minions and cars so word gets around when you come in first and coming in first matters to you better than getting kicked in the teeth Yeah, i suppose that is so he made a sound i wasn't being that serious I see. You're new around these parts. I'm Yamar, Yamar Montez. She put out her hand. There was a large jade and stone ring on her finger. They shook. Good to meet you. The pleasure's all mine, Deacon Coles. Those eyes. Deek, a voice called out. He turned to see an inebriated Sakamoto holding out a beer to him. Here you go, Daddy, yo. Uh, yeah, cool, Sack, but I was just talking to Yamar here, hoping he'd get the hint and blow. Who? She'd slipped away and Coles couldn't spot her beyond the small circles of light and lanterns allowed. The lanterns allowed. Never mind, he sighed, taking the beer. His friend grinned, bobbing his head to the bongo beat.
5: Thanks,
2: Gary. That was amazing.
8: Thank you.
5: This time I got Gerald Elias, and uh, he's got a new book coming out in May called Old Murder on Vacation. So welcome, Gerald, and tell us about what you're going to read.
4: Well, great to be back. Murder on Vacation is a... Baker's Dozen collection of short crime fiction. Uh, each story features the protagonist, Maury Gross, who is an NYPD retired police chief. And he and his wife, Bobby, are always trying to go on vacation uh, to some of the big holiday vacation spots around the country. But it seems wherever he goes, there is a crime that's committed that the local law enforcement can't solve so they call upon him because he is such an expert, and he is such a nice guy that uh, he can't resist. It's a very light-hearted collection. You know, going out on a limb, you know, he's a, a cop that has no dark backstory. Uh, he's not alcoholic. He doesn't have Alzheimer's. He's not dysfunctional. He has a great family and is highly respected. So in that regard, he's quite a unique, character for detective season.
5: Yeah. Other than the last part, it sounds like me. <laughs> well go for it. Let's see let's I'm anxious to hear it.
4: Thanks. I'm gonna be reading the beginning of a story called Getting Ahead. It's for you, dear, the wife said, and then in a whisper, she sounds very nice. She handed me the phone. Hello, I said. Agent Michaela Redman, sir, Department of Homeland Security. We've got a hostage situation good luck to you i said we need to talk to you about it you wrote the book on hostage negotiations we can use your help young lady it's a beautiful summer morning my wife and i are standing in front of old faithful in yellowstone national park with a professional photographer it's for our annual holiday greeting card and it's going to erupt any minute now i can't i understand sir i'm here at yellowstone too What a lovely coincidence. Make sure you keep your distance from the grizzlies. The secretary of DHS asked me to find you. I'm observing you as we speak. But, as you said, you've already got my book on hostage negotiations. What do you need me for? This one's not in your book. It's different. Different? How so? The hostage is ahead. Hold on a minute. I put the phone down. Take our picture, I said to the photographer, now. But it isn't erupting yet, the wife said. You know how to photoshop? I asked the photographer. Am I a professional or what? Good. Take the picture. I am smiling. Great. Thank you. Okay, young lady, what's the story? Are you familiar with the name Clark Harlan Spurgis?" Of course I've heard of Clark Harlan Spurgis. Everyone in law enforcement had. He'd been a go wacko fanatic leader of the violent, ultra nationalist white power group. The shadowy Aryan Universalist Network. Yes, I'm familiar with that name. He was killed, what, seven or eight years ago? When one of his own followers shot him with a bow and arrow. That's right. Except Spurgis didn't totally die. Totally die? Is there something in between? A partial die? Sort of. Spit it out, agent. Spurgis was worried that upon his death, Whether he died of natural causes or was killed, the movement he started would fall apart without his leadership. To make a long story short, he had instructed his closest followers to have his head surgically removed and frozen, like what was done with Ted Williams. Oh, cryopreservation. That's exactly it, sir. Cryopreservation. Their hope is that someday in the future, when medical science has progressed, The head can be attached to a new body and be revived. In the meantime, since in a way he's still alive, his organization has stayed pretty much intact. They continue to worship him like he's a god or something. Huh, waiting for the resurrection. We try to keep religion out of this. Of course. It's all very interesting, but what does this have to do with the hostage situation? Spurgis' head had been frozen in a secret, guarded Aryan Universalist Network fortress somewhere in the Sawtooth Mountains here in Wyoming, but now someone's stolen it and is holding it for ransom. The AUN has called us to help get the head back. They called DHS. That's Hutzpah if I've ever heard it. But if the fortress was secret and guarded, how did Spurgeon's head manage to get itself stolen? For some reason, I was having a hard time taking this very seriously. There was a suspicious power outage at their facility, threatening the specific temperature controls that maintained the head's viability. The AUN had been prepared for such an eventuality, with a specially accessorized van that would take it to another secure location. But on the way, the van was hijacked. It was a precisely planned and executed kidnapping, sir. Why do you say the power outage was suspicious? No one else in the region reported an interruption in service. The AUN facility was clearly the target. Who are the hijackers? They claim to represent an organization called the Center. Never heard of them. We hadn't either. Were the drivers killed? They were released unharmed, sir. How much money did the head want? That's the problem, sir. They don't want money. Their demand to the AUN is... If they don't disband and turn over all their weapons to the government by midnight, they'll defrost the head. Sounds like a win win to me, I said. We try to keep politics out of this, sir. The problem is AUN issued a counter threat. Not your typical hostage negotiating tactic, but go ahead, tell me their counter threat. If Sturgis's head is not returned fully frozen and viable, AUN said they will commence an armed uprising in every state capital with the goal of overturning our form of government. Ah! Sorry if I've upset you, sir. It's not that. Old faithful just erupted. I'm soaking wet. Sorry, sir. Never mind. What is it you want me to do? We want you to take the lead in the negotiations, sir. Are you kidding? Look, first of all, I'm retired. Second, I'm on vacation. Third, and this is the clincher, as NYPD police chief, I had to deal with terrorism on a daily basis, and the AUN was the worst of the worst. Their racist hate speech and anti-American manifestos were just on this side of First Amendment protection. But the meat of their organization, the location of their cells, their contacts, their weaponry, their actual game plans, were so deeply encrypted that we couldn't pin anything on them. The subway bombings the cop shootings, the churches, synagogue torches. they are died in the world domestic terrorists. And now you're asking me to go play nice with them and get their leaders' head back so they can continue to be a threat to civilization? Yes, sir, because there's no option. In this situation, better to have them threatening violence than committing it. That's what we thought. That got my attention, and she had a point. Well, Agent Redmond, Considering the possible repercussions of this predicament, if I were to say yes to doing this, I'd need to be certain that Homeland Security has my back before I meet with these people. Done that, sir. We're all ready.
5: Well, fantastic. We look forward to seeing you at the uh, at the event too. Left Coast Crime. you there. And now down to Joe. He's again. He's in the center of another crowd. I don't know how he gets so many people around him.
0: Because I am with. Uh, James the Twelfth, who's been nominated or won about every award that's out there for his crime writing. And he's going to be reading from Face of Greed.
3: Yeah, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Uh, it's nice to, be, nice to be back here again. Yeah, I'll be reading from Face of Greed. It's the uh, first novel in a new series uh, featuring Detective Emily Hunter. And uh, I'm just going to read a, a little taste from the first chapter to kind of give you a little bit of what Emily's about and what she's facing and what she's up against. Uh, even before the investigation really starts. So we'll we'll start with her story here. Chapter 1. Emily Hunter learned to be wary of open doorways when she rolled up to a call. In the five years of her assignment at the Detective Bureau of the Sacramento Police Department, she knew bad things often lurked in the dark behind partially open doors. When it was the front door of your own home, at 7 in the evening, the anxiety bit deep. She crept close, listening for anything or anyone who didn't belong. Her hand tapped the grip, on the Glock on her hip as she climbed the stairs. The lights were on. The television blared an infomercial for a product promising the end of dry skin. Mom? Emily had moved her mother in with her four months ago after this 70-year-old retired teacher suffered a series of memory lapses and household accidents. The advancing scourge of dementia Connie Hunter was unable to live a safe, independent life in her own home. Mom? Are you there? She left. Emily called out for the caregiver she'd hired to stay with her mother while Emily worked long hours as a detective. When no response came from within, Emily's subconscious went to a very dark place. She'd investigated a series of home invasions in the city where gangbangers targeted the homes of elderly people to terrorize and loot money and prescription drugs from the weak and the powerless. The front door hadn't been kicked in. There was no sign of a forced entry. Emily entered and scanned the living room, except for the missing mother and caregiver, the home appeared normal. She turned off the television set and heard the kitchen faucet running. A quick look into her remodeled kitchen found the water running over a sink full of dishes, but no one there. She shut the water off and spotted, spotted Connie's GPS-enabled pendant on the kitchen counter. She held the tracker in her hand. Then Emily heard the front door slam, followed by the metallic click of the deadbolt. She heard the voices before stepping into the living room. Sheila had draped the comforter from the sofa over Connie's frail shoulders. Her mother was wearing a light housecoat and a pair of fuzzy pink slippers. She shivered as Sheila rubbed her arms, warming her. What happened? Where were you? Emily asked. I found her wandering down the street near the park, Sheila said. Connie looked small and fragile in the housecoat, one too thin for the cold spring air. Mom, what were you thinking? It was time to go, Connie said with a shiver in her voice. Go? Go where? Home. Emily bit her lip. It wasn't the first time her mother mentioned going home or the need to do something somewhere else. Sundowner syndrome, the doctors called it. A little gift that came with dementia, confusion, a sudden surge of anxiety, and a feeling that she was lost. And in a way she was. Mom, this is home now, Emily said. I swear I turned her back, my back on her for a second while I was finishing up the dinner dishes and she slipped out. She hasn't pulled that one before. What happened? She seemed a little more confused than usual, but I couldn't tell me why. She was watching her shows, and then she just walked out. I can't be responsible for her wandering off. You might want to think about moving her into a facility. I'm not putting Mom in a home. Emily draped the GPS locket around her mother's neck. Why weren't you wearing this? It's not mine. Yes, it is. Remember, we talked about it. Connie didn't respond, but the look behind her eyes was one of confusion and uncertainty. Emily's work cell phone vibrated in her pocket. Calls after 7 in the evening weren't, for, weren't telemarketers who should be banished to a leper colony. These nighttime calls invariably meant someone suffered a beating, a rape, another murder in a city with no shortage of victims. In earlier years, she wondered if she didn't answer the call, if she let it ring until it stopped, would the crime still occur? Could she prevent another victim from ending up in some desolate field? A few hundred calls later, her naive hope evaporated and she came to terms with the fact that the flow of victims in the city was never-ending. She stabbed the answer button. Hunter here. Evening, detective. Hold for the watch commander. A woman's voice instructed. While Emily, Emily waited, she plodded to the office in the rear of her home and removed a fresh notebook out of the bottom drawer. She wrote on the first line of the first page, 20, 1935 hours received a call from the watch commander. Hey, Emily, Lieutenant Ford here. Initial report is a home invasion gone bad. One victim dead and one injured. Another one? Where are we talking about? The location is, Emily heard rustling paper in the background. Here it is. It's 1357 43rd Street. That's a nice neighborhood. It used to be anyway. I'll call Medina and get there as soon as I can, Emily responded. I called him first. His name was up on the rotation. Javier said he'd meet you on scene, Emily. And There's something else you need to know, Emily fell silent. The chief is already there. He's taking a personal interest in this one. Oh, sweet Jesus, that's never a good sign. Emily tossed the notebook on the desk. Gotta mean, this is a high-profile case, so watch your back. I appreciate the heads up. I'll be there as soon as I tie up something. She disconnected the call and tried to figure out how she could work the case remotely. Maybe her partner, Javier, could hold up his phone and live stream the crime scene. Who is she kidding? Sheila? Emily found her mother, and Sheila parked in the living room watching a television show that was popular in the 60s. Connie had calmed, and her face was relaxed. I can stay, Sheila said. I overheard the call. I think she's calm now. It won't be long until she's off to bed. I'll keep an eye on her. Thank you. Call me if there's any problem. but Please make her wear that GPS, pendant. I'll figure something out. As Emily changed into a fresh blouse, the thought of the chief wandering the crime scene kept surfacing. What drew the top cop out to a crime scene after dark wasn't going to bode well for the assigned detectives. Once in her dark blue Ford Crown Victoria... Emily let the defroster attack the rapidly forming condensation on the windshield. Sections of the window cleared, and showcased the obnoxious blue Christmas lights her neighbor clung onto four months after the holiday season. They blinked on and off all at once, stabbing a constant strobe into the detective's bedroom window. Another flimsy excuse for her insomnia. As the car warmed up, Emily got out and scraped a thin film of ice from the driver's window with the side of her hand. She stole a glance down the quiet street gathered her shoulder-length dark hair in a ponytail, and stepped back into the shadows, away from the car. She followed the fence line to the neighbor's glowing, stale, yuletide shrine. Emily pulled the seventh and tenth small bulbs from their socket and partially re-threaded the maddening electrical orbs back into the strand. The entire string blacked out, and she basked in the electric silence without the hellish current knifing into the night. Then she returned to the car, backed out of the driveway, and wondered when her lazy-ass neighbor would recognize he'd become the victim of a drive-by halving. Emily made a right on J Street and sped to 46, where the glow from the blinking red, blue, and yellow lights of emergency vehicles exacted some sort of revenge for his neighbor's display. Residents of this upscale enclave didn't take the car, park their Benz, Jag, or Maserati on the street. Their precious status symbols were locked away in garages or behind walled courtyards. She recognized the silver crown in front of her as the mayor's car, and she crept forward until her bumper came within an inch of the mayor's sedan, effectively boxing the politician's ride again against a fire vehicle with a bright red and white sign warning, Keep Back 100 Feet. The chief and the mayor at the crime scene. Frickin' awesome. And that's where I'll leave it.
0: That's great. Well, it shines in this, in this book. Oh, I, thank I you. think everybody should grab it to, to learn yeah. and, to, and to read and be entertained by it. It's, it's fascinating.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you.
4: This has been a production of the House of Mystery
0: Radio Show.
4: To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at
7: houseofmysteryradio.com.
1: You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests,